The following podcast is presented by Ensign Services, Inc., a company engaged in the business of providing contracted for administrative and back office type support services to post-acute healthcare clients. Ensign Services provides accounting, human resources, compliance, legal, risk management, information technology, training, construction support, and other such miscellaneous services to its clients. These contracted for services are available to be utilized at the sole discretion of its clients. References within the podcast to the company and its activities, as well as the use of the terms we, us, its, our, and similar terms used during the discussion are not meant to imply that Ensign Services, Inc. or the Ensign Group, Inc. has any direct operational control, supervision, or direction of the independently operated post-acute healthcare entities. All right, we are back again. And actually, we just finished our last podcast, so uh, we can act like we've been gone for a, a week or two. But uh, we just finished the first Multipliers <laughs> podcast, and and uh, we've been able to take our breaks and get going again. So, so Spencer, glad to have you back. Thank you. After you, your 15-minute break. You've aged, actually, since <laughs> I, know, I saw I'm you last. sure that I have. <laughs> so... Uh, on, on this podcast, you know, there's so many things. We could probably do seven podcasts on multipliers and and still not cover all the content. But but what I really want to dig into on this one is is what I cover in a lot of my trainings on multipliers, and it's the accidental diminisher, right? We sometimes we intentionally diminish people. Like I, I I'll ask the question: Have you ever been happy when somebody else failed? Right, and there are there are cases where where some of us feel a little bit guilty about that, but. Uh, you know, that that's not what we're going to focus on. Today's focus will be on how sometimes we think we're doing the right thing, but in reality, we're causing more problems than we're fixing, right? So that's the sort of definition of an accidental diminisher. And maybe just as a quick review to our last last podcast, we we discussed how multipliers are great listeners because they live with the attitude that genius is all around them, right? And they want to learn all they can from everyone. So, so a diminisher has the attitude that that nothing will get done correctly without them, right? No, nobody can solve the problem without me, and this tends this causes them to to be tyrants, know it alls. They make all the decisions, they micromanage, and therefore they have no work life balance, right? I mean, this this is probably a lot of people that are listening right now. Whereas multipliers tend to be a, a magnet for talented people because they liberate them and they challenge them. They they create a culture of debate uh, and they invest in their people. So, so Spencer, uh, here's, here's what I'd like to discuss with you and, and, and the different types of accidental diminishers and, and see if our listeners can sort of self-identify with some of these. I, I feel like I self-identify with, with almost all of them. And then, and then also talk about what we can do to, to counter them. Right. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited for this podcast because anyone who's read this book or maybe even listened to the podcast, you start feeling kind of humbled, right? You're like, Hopefully, I have to. if you're reading it honestly, <laughs> you've got to feel a little bit guilty reading this book, and right? It's, it's like going to the doctor and they just say, you're sick with this, you got this, this is a problem, you're overweight, you're, you got chronic this, you got that. And you leave and you're just like, whoa. Yeah. So this is the second part where they say, but... Yeah, but you here's know, what you can here's do. Here's the remedy. It. I think yeah. there's some things you can do to fix it. So hopefully you don't find this as a, a discouraging podcast, but instead a, a sort of empowering podcast. So so let's start with the idea guy because she sort of labels each of these. She by she I mean Liz Weissman. She it, it's important to understand this person correctly. I think sometimes when we think of the idea guy, we think they're the person that thinks all of their ideas are best. Um, these people tend to be really creative and imaginative, 
Um, but but that's not it. It's it's not the problem that they think their ideas are best. Here's the problem. They don't necessarily think their ideas are best. They just believe their ideas will get the ball rolling and spark ideas in others so that they start sort of spewing ideas, right? And when I read this, I thought, well, that doesn't seem like a problem. Like, I know leaders all the time that say, well, I'm just going to throw out some ideas so that so that people so that I'll generate discussion, right? This is the idea, guy. So so Spencer, why why is it bad for someone to say, you know, here, I'm just gonna throw out some ideas to start people thinking, especially if they acknowledge that their ideas might not always be the best ones? So I think a, a big part of this is this isn't a section that's we're not gonna be talking today about people that are just, you know, diminishers on purpose or yeah. just mean, nasty people who don't care about others. This whole section that we're talking about today is accidental diminishers. These are like good things that we think we're doing. She defines it as an accidental diminisher is a well-intended leader, often following popular management practices, yeah. who subtly and completely unaware shuts down the intelligence of others. Yeah, and that, These that's are popular what, management practices. These are things that I feel like I've been trained to do in other organizations. Right. And so, so the idea of you know, the idea guy coming with good ideas and trying to get the ball rolling, that is a, it seems like a positive thing. And it's not saying that you can't ever have ideas, right? right? Hopefully we all have good ideas, but what it's saying is do it in an effective way that gets the whole team thinking and gets everyone's intelligence engaged. That's what we have to avoid doing by, uh, by making sure we're not an idea guy. So the idea guy, when you, when think about what happens when you as the leader say, I have this idea, probably would be different if you were, you know, a member of the team instead of the leader of a team. Yeah. So if, if we're in a meeting and I say, okay, we've got, we've got to solve this problem. Does anybody have any ideas? What always happens is the idea guy speaks up first, like whether you're the leader or not, right? The idea guy always speaks up first because they feel like they're performing a service to get the ball rolling. They may even think it's their nat native genius to just have good ideas. Yeah. They're waiting for them. And the reality is, is they are probably waiting for them, right? They're, they're sort of waiting for the, the fountain of ideas to spew so they don't have to think. Right. But multipliers, remember, it's not a comfortable thing. Multipliers, it's about maybe yeah. discomfort that helps us get the outcomes we want to have. So especially as the leader, you got to avoid being the idea guy and, and actually be cognizant that that can be one of our weaknesses. Because when the leader says, I've got this idea, no one listens what it's what's said after that. They may say, but I want to hear your ideas. They may say, but, you know, I'm not sure it's the right idea. Once the leader says, I have this idea, I think a lot of people will default to, okay, I'm in execution yeah. mode. Here, here's tell me the what answer. To do. Yeah. yeah. Now I'm going to just wait for him to tell me what to do. And then I'll go give my 50% because I'm not being multiplied. And they, and they almost feel like they're being patronized in asking for their ideas because eventually we're just going to go with the idea guy's idea, right? Right. And, That's a good and, point. And so they... It's almost like, okay, I know you're trying to get me to flex my mental capacity, but nothing's ever going to happen with this. So, so countering that, right? I mean, I, I, you know, my teams in meetings sort of uh, make fun of me uh, because they know that I'm dying to spew my thoughts. So I've, I've got a little bit of the, the idea guy virus, right? Where, where there is a blank space and I have all sorts of thoughts and I want to start spewing those thoughts. Now what I do is I have a piece of paper right next to me. And when I have something that I'm dying to say, I write it down. 
and I just let it I let it sit there uh, for a little bit and I watch it for a little bit and 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 I've even had some of my team members tell me how proud they are of me that I that I'm able to hold it. That's sort of the holding tank idea. Yeah, I think that's a good one. Some other ideas would be um, this idea of just asking ex- extreme questions. You know, if you're someone who tends to be the idea guy, if you're the one who's always got the quick, quickest and best idea, you think? Yeah. Ask some extreme questions. Um, she says, conduct an experiment where you ask questions and you let others offer the answers. Be sure to drop restatements and comments and only ask questions. Hmm. So you have to be extreme in your question asking. And, uh, you know, she what says- that, What does I, that mean to be extreme? Like you're, you're pushing assumptions, you're- well, I mean, here's a question that you couldn't ask if you're being extreme. You couldn't ask, don't you think it would be good if we did this? Yeah, a little bit leading. Right? right? It's a leading question. You have to be extreme in your curiosity and your questions with the pure intent of not being the idea guy. Yeah. And after you've done that a few times, along with doing your holding tank idea, the thought is people, you know, there's this space and people are uncomfortable with the space just being there. And you're still going to be able to share your ideas. Your ideas will be just as good. They'll just be seasoned with great ideas from other people instead of, you know, it's a lot of pressure to be the idea guy. If you think about it, I mean, imagine you're leading a team and you have to always have the best idea. What are the chances? I mean, it's like rolling, you know, snake eyes 20 times in a row. It's not going to happen. I I found too, that if I, if I write it down on paper and I think, okay, I want to make sure this eventually gets said and I put it in the holding tank, right? I find that my team says the things that I wanted to say and it elevates them, right? They have a chance to share those things. And so I, it, it, I do feel like in exercising that muscle, it's, it's, you know, I've had a chance to sort of multiply them. And then, and then as you do it, kind of that same idea of, of the poker chips that we talked about in the other podcast, if you're doing that and, you know, maybe some of the easier answers are not offered by you and you yeah. can actually save your credibility and also save your, you know, your thoughts and your explaining for some maybe some building on those ideas. I think that's important too. If you're the guy who's always having to do the first idea, you maybe aren't able to help refine or perfect some of the ideas of other people, hmm. which may have been, you know, your same idea in some cases. Okay. All right. So let's, let's jump to another one. Um, this is one that I've, uh, I've been accused of and uh, we'll, we'll switch genders here. Well, so the, the always on girl. Okay, the, the person who is always on, the always on girl is trying to create energy for everyone, right? I mean, the, the always on people tend to be promoted. They're, they've got a lot of energy. Uh, they, they believe that their energy is going to be infectious. What, what's the problem with being the always on person? Well, I think part of it is people tend to compare themselves naturally. And that's hmm. not good or bad. But if I'm always comparing myself and I see you, Clay, or we'll use this always on androgynous person. And and if that person's always on and has energy and is always positive and everything, I start comparing myself. I might not be a good fit here because I can't keep up with this person, you know, or what's wrong with me. And I think there's, there's an element. So am I supposed to turn off my energy? Am I supposed to just be quiet? And well, I think the, the idea is it's a good thing to the extent that it doesn't diminish other people. Okay. If you can control your always on in a way that inspires instead of intimidates, you know, that, then you're going to get results. And I think none of these things are bad. Is it bad to have good ideas? No. Is it bad to have good energy? No. Is it bad to care about people like we're going to talk about in another one of these? Um, no. But it's controlling them in a way that maximizes the effectiveness of the team you lead. 
And so, you know, th this is where the, you know, again, um, the always on the energy person, there's, there's a number of things you can do. Um, one of them they talk about is just uh, don't repeat yourself so much. Sometimes these people are the ones that tend to be like, you know, almost like, what was the dog on uh, back on the Looney Tunes? The one that was going around Spike, like, what are we going to do now, Spike? What are we going to do now, Spike? I can't. No one watched the Looney Tunes. Not, yeah. Kind of the, the yappy dog that just is always going and just uh -huh. always talking and we, there are people that sometimes you have so much energy, you tend to be that yappy dog and yeah. people don't listen to you. So she recommends, you know, when, when you're excited, which always on people tend to be excited a lot. Mm -hmm. She says, we tend to repeat ourselves and re-explain things for emphasis. We're hoping to get a positive reaction. And when we don't see it, we re-explain it in another way with more energy. And pretty soon we've just kind of, you know, burned out everybody there. So she says, avoid over-contributing by just saying important things once. You'll actually get more traction if you do that. So I've got to debate that a little bit because I, I, I'm i thinking of the teaching that, that Patrick Lencioni gives. And he, he says oftentimes as leaders, we're to be CROs, which is chief repetition officers. He says sometimes we have to repeat ourselves multiple times. And I... I, I'm trying to take her teaching on this because I think I understand what she's saying, that if we're just that yappy, repetitive, hey, this, this, do this, we got to do this, hey, remember, we got to do this, that can come off as annoying and exhausting. But at the same time, there's a balance that we do need to repeat ourselves often because sometimes I need to hear things, you know, 10 or 11 times before I sort of come to the epiphany of, hey, I need to start doing that. Yeah, I think when Patrick Lencioni is saying repeat it, you know, repeat yourself, uh -huh. it's when the group has got, you know, clarity. Uh -huh. When we've established clarity, we need to continue to over-communicate clarity. Oh, got it. Reinforce clarity. That makes sense. I, I think she's more talking about in these sessions where we're trying to figure out what to do. If you're repeating something that hasn't been created as clarity, haven't, you're dominating. They and haven't you, supported the idea and I come back with it again and again. That makes more I, sense. I think that's what they're talking about. That's the difference because yeah. both are important. But really, uh, just I think those that maybe have this as an, you know, an accidental diminisher trait, you'll probably find that you're actually able to communicate more effectively when you just tone it down a little bit and yeah. communicate it effectively once. Yeah, I, I like the I like the example she gives of and, and this is a solution to a lot of the accidental diminishers, but this idea of giving up fifty one percent of the vote, right? This this whole concept of of okay, I you know, I like this idea, I'm gonna I'm gonna fight for something like this, but looking at your teammates and saying, But this is going to be your decision. I have forty nine percent of the vote, but you can trump me. Right? And that sort of generates an energy in them and it and it takes the the weight of ownership and sort of takes it off your shoulders and and helps them practice carrying that ownership. And uh, and so I, I, I think, you know, I, I think that's something that I, I try and practice a lot more is, is saying to my team, OK, this is your call. I'm going to I'm going to offer my opinions, but but we'll go over there. OK, so let's go on to the rescuer. Uh, this is I don't, I don't know. Can you have favorites as far as accidental diminishing traits? But I, look, I know so many of us fall prey to this. I know that I do. This is the one that I self-diagnose with. The the rescuer wants to ensure everyone is successful, and they're really prone to protecting their own sort of reputation, right? I, you know, I always think about uh, how my kids are supposed to take care of the yard, right? I have a son that's supposed to always bring in the garbage cans, well, if, oh, and take them out. Well, if he doesn't do that, the garbage piles up. And so if he fails to do that, what do I do? I do it. Right. He, I don't allow him to experience the natural consequences of it, right? I do it, so I rescue him. And then he knows, well, if I don't do it, then uh, eventually dad will take care of it. I'm a rescuer. 
Yeah, I think this is probably one that if we were to, you know, take the most common accidental diminisher trait in our company, yeah, I think this would win by far. Yeah. Uh, and it's because we tend to be compassionate people. That's why we're in the business we're in. We tend to care about people. Our nurses are some of the best at wanting to rescue people. And look, rescuing people from their health calamities yeah. is a good thing. Yeah. We can't let other people make mistakes because it's too dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a good yeah. point too. The stakes are pretty high in what we do. With the natural consequences, someone dies, we probably shouldn't. Re yeah. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. not necessarily a natural consequence yeah. we're willing to live with. But I think that there is a lot to be said here because we also have problems with burnout. We have part, problems with people going and going and going and carrying all the burdens until they just collapse and can't do anymore. And in this time where we're coming out of a COVID pandemic, we have to be able to recognize in ourselves uh, that rescuing not only uses a lot of energy, at the end of the day, if it uses a lot of energy, but it helps people, then we probably should do it. But if it's ineffective and it's using our energy and burning us out, we, sh we need to stop doing that. And uh, being a rescuer at the end of the day isn't effective because it creates dependency. Helping people and building people is different than rescuing people. I think maybe we should flesh that out a little bit more. And this this is why we get calls as leaders at, at two in the morning or at, at these crazy hours because we we have we have carried all the ownership on ourselves. And anytime anything goes wrong, we've taught them that if they come to us, we'll solve their problem. And we do it in the name of wanting to be a good leader, right? We do it in the name of wanting to solve problems. I, you know, the, the, another parenting example, I have lots of, uh, my, my kids have friends that, that when their kids don't get the teacher they want, what do the parents do? They walk right into that school and they talk to that principal and they make sure that they're little Johnny gets the the teacher or the classmate or whoever that they want. They solve that child's problem and the child never learns how to deal with disappointment or unfavorable circumstances. So what happens is little Johnny grows up and he gets a job where his boss isn't a very good boss or he has partners that aren't very good partners and mommy's not there to come and help him and he doesn't know how to deal with that situation because the well-intentioned rescuer has diminished him. So... I think, you know, especially newer administrators, which I've been been one and I, I work with a lot right now, sometimes we think it validates us when we have people coming to us asking us a lot of questions, yeah. when we've created that dependency. Yeah. I was in, we see how important we are. We're important because how could they possibly succeed without yeah. us? I was in a facility a couple of weeks ago where a new administrator, been there two or three months, you know, had people who were, you know, 10-year MDS nurses or 15-year maintenance guys coming to them, asking him really silly questions that there's no way he knew the answer to. Right. These were technical they questions. They should have known, yeah. They did know. Yeah. But there was this culture created where I got to go talk to the administrator. And not wow. only was it ineffective because we got a two-month administrator making decisions about complex things that you know his experts actually know about. Not only that, that poor guy's... Uh, He's run ragged. I couldn't get a word in you know, on my resource visit because he had people lined up at his door. So what do you say to the rescuer? What, what, how do they counter this? Do you just let people fail? Uh, I, I think um, in some cases, if you happen to be you know, the arbiter of all knowledge, it's going to be hard. But first of all, recognize you're not. You mm -hmm. know? These people probably know the answers. And if you can see them differently and understand, you know, this MDS nurse, she's, a, she's an expert. Mm -hmm. She's good. And if she's not, why is she your MDS nurse? She has a level of knowledge and she has a resource that can support her with the knowledge questions. She may come and need validation and she may need you to help her work through or rephrase her question. But um, Liz Wiseman says, basically, when people come to you with a question, help them 
find the the fix. That doesn't mean give it to them, but just ask them mm. about it. You can validate. You can say, look, you're a great MDS nurse. I know you've worked through this a lot. You've got great resources. What do you think? You know, what are you proposing? Most of the time they have the answer. Yeah, I, th I think about, you know, the, the CNA that comes to you and says, hey, Mrs. Smith lost her hearing aid again. What do we do? What do we, you know, that's the question you're getting constantly. What, what do we do? Can I be, am I authorized to do this? And you're the rescuer, you're solving their problems. And if that rescuer can sort of turn that conversation and say, well, what is it that we're trying to accomplish here? And make that person answer and then say, how do we best accomplish that? And now instead of leading through answers and commands, I'm I'm sort of leading through questions, right? And I'm I'm turning the questions back to them, and I'm not I'm not leaving them alone, but I'm helping them make sure that they're asking the right questions, and then saying, you know, is that the right thing to do? Yeah, and then hopefully giving them the confidence. Uh, I don't think this is like a acute event where all of a sudden, if you've been a rescuer for a long time, you'll stop being one, or if you have a bunch of dependent folks that you're facility because you've been a rescuer for a long time. Yeah. They're just going to immediately stop being dependent on you. Yeah. It's a process, but I think the process can move pretty quickly. And really what you're giving people is the gift of confidence and success for the future. You're developing them where they can be the leader and hopefully they'll learn from your mistake and they won't be a rescuer when, when they're in the administrative yeah, chair. Yeah, I think you give them confidence chair. just by asking the question. The fact that you care about what they think in the matter, that, that elevates them. And I think we need to do a better job of that. And it helps to be sincere when you ask the question. But yeah. if we're in touch with reality, we should be sincere because the fact is we don't know everything about hearing aid loss prevention and MDS completion and, you know, medication management. We just don't know all that stuff. So so, you, so an example of being insincere then is when you say, okay, what do you think we should do? But you really have the answer in your mind and you're just trying to get them to guess it. <laughs> Almost and I'm against not that. quite. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm against, you know, I always want to, you were a lawyer, you know, to objection leading the witness, right? I mean, I... I I want to make sure that we're not just trying to trick them into thinking what we're what we're thinking. Our questions should be genuine. What are we trying to accomplish? How do you think we should accomplish that? Is the solution you propose the right thing to do? You're sort of shifting the intent to them and you're shifting psychological ownership to them and you're stopped being a rescuer. Yeah. And in her example, this is a nuance, but um, the example of someone bringing a correction on a paper to the boss and the boss handing it back and saying, yeah. don't give me a, you know, uh, an AWK and awkward without yeah. a FIX or yeah. fix. I think with folks too, it's okay to take a, some time and say, look, I don't know the answer to this. What do you propose? What do you propose? And you can come back to me in an hour if yeah. it's not an urgent thing. Yeah, or come back to me tomorrow. Gather people together. Ask your coworkers. Yeah. Some of the best solutions I've seen in facilities were things that when I was desperate enough, I was humble enough to just ask people sincerely what they thought because I had no idea and I was worn out. And those are where the best ideas come that have transformed facilities. Okay, good. I feel like we could talk about Rescuer for the whole podcast. That's, that's a good one. The, ne the next one's interesting to me, a little bit weird to me, and it's called the pace setter. Um, you know, I feel like we've always called pace setting leading by example, right? Which is good. Leading by example sounds like a really good thing. So I assumed that it's good for a leader to set a high standard for quality. So, so help me understand the pace setter and why the pace setter might be a problem. Well, it's a problem because it can demotivate people. She uses the example of, you know, she goes out uh, and races her three-year-old. If you're mm. running against your three-year-old, do you just go as fast as you can and then say, sucker? You sort of, you sort of pretend. You're never going to be right? as good. You're you like, pretend oh, you run in place, close. you move yeah. your arms a lot, you know, you're encouraging them. I know that sounds a little paternalistic and the example is paternalistic. Let me give you an adult example of the same thing that I think is actually inspiring. 
I had a chance. Um, my daughter started track and um, she wants to run the mile or, or wanted to run the mile. She actually became pretty good at it. I was really proud of her. But we pulled out old videos and we wanted to see the record mile that's ever been run, the fastest mile that's ever been run. I think it was in like 2001. It's been a long time that that record has stayed. And the person who um, set that record was a little guy. He's like 5'9", 125 mm. pounds, named Hikam El Garouche. I think he's from Morocco. Mm. And this 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 guy, he went out there and when he set, we watched the race. It was like three minutes and 43 seconds mm. that he ran the mile in. And this is how he did it. That's a minute faster than I can. Yeah, it's a minute. You're, you're 100 or you're 200. <laughs> oh, we're talking about a mile, mile excuse yeah. me. <laughs> so, um, so, but the way he did it is he actually had a pace setter. Um, they had these runners who would go out and they wouldn't run as fast as they absolutely could, but they would run a little bit faster on the first lap than El Garouche had ever run. Hmm. And then another person would, would surge forward and run a little bit faster the second. And then those guys so dropped out. So he had a mark to look at. So he at. had a mark and they weren't, you know, 40 weren't feet in sprinting. front of him. No, yeah. they could have sprinted faster because if right. they were only going one lap, Compared they knew they were only mile. going one lap. Right. But they ran a little bit faster and they pulled him along. And then the last, you know, lap he was on his own because these guys all dropped out. They couldn't do it. That's interesting. And he set, you know, what may always last is the greatest uh, mile. If we can be a pace setter like that, where we recognize it's not about us, that pace setter got no glory. No one knows the name of that pace setter. But the glory is there's a, a mile that's been run in, you know, three minutes and 43 seconds. World record. And that wouldn't have happened without the pace setter. Mm. Be humble enough to be a pace setter that gets results, not that wins the race. So it sounds like the solution to that might be sort of giving up 51% of the vote again. That, that that seems like another one, right? Because here, I can do this. I can do this better than you and, and, and I'll just take off and everyone's just sort of trying to keep up with you. But if you're saying, hey, I'm leaving this decision to you. What's the right thing to do? We're elevating them. We're we're staying within sh you know earshot or 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 you know uh, so right where they can see us. Um, that will keep them going instead of exhausting them with us taking off ahead of them. And when they finally do pass you, it's a good thing. Yeah, that's what you want as yeah. a multiplier. Yeah, as long as we don't have egos, right? That's that's exactly what the goal should be: is to to elevate them. So so the next one's kind of funny. I, it's a rapid responder. I, I had a conversation a few years back with with Barry and Christopher in in some of our meetings, and I, I had just sent them something when we have when questions would be thrown out via email. Barry and Christopher would be sometimes very quick to respond. Well, this is what I think. And I said, hey, you guys need to, you guys should probably hold back a little bit, wait before giving your response so that others have a chance to think before you offer. And so so the, the rapid responders um, tend to be the way they are because they're just anxious to keep things moving, right? That Barry and Christopher just, they like keeping things moving. They're, it's why they are where they are, right? In, in leading an organization. Um, so, so how do, why is that bad? And, and how do you counter the rapid responder? Well, I think it doesn't create debates. And that's something we talked about in our other podcast, this idea of being a debate maker. If the goal is to get a quick response, there's no quicker resp uh, way to get a quick answer than giving it yourself, especially when you're the leader and no one else is going to say anything after you yeah. give that response. But if it's to get the right response or get the right answer that will allow us to you know, have long-term results, it does take a little bit of discipline. And this is a hard one for all of us. It's yeah. a hard one for me. But um, doing it creates debate, which creates the right discussions, which creates the best answers. And it's well worth the extra, you know, 
few minutes that it takes to to get to the right answer. Well, and I remember Christopher's response to me was, well, nobody's speaking up, you know? And so this sort of goes back to the idea guy, right? I'm just trying to get the ball rolling with some thoughts and 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 it's true, but I but I think that uh, we need to somehow create that patience. We need to be willing to, and I've believed this for a long time, we as leaders need to be willing to embrace uncomfortable silence and and not fill that void so that others, you know, have the chance to get the courage built up and, and you know, fill that that silent void. I've actually seen um, examples on email chains where Christopher and Barry are holding back on yeah. purpose. I know. Yeah. And the good thing is there's actually debate and discussion that's happening. So they're they're succeeding at the feedback yeah. you gave them. Which I'm credit to them. Yeah, well, you're welcome. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I'm seeing a bunch of shaking heads right now. Uh, I think I just diminished. Uh, all right, so so let's talk about this last one. Um, and and this reminds me of good to great and 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 sort of the Stockdale paradox. It's an interesting one. The next accidental diminisher is the optimist, right? We're supposed to be optimists, right? We're not supposed to be pessimists. So they're they're the ones that say, "Hey, we can do it." right? We can get this done. So tell me the problem with the optimist. Again, it's a good thing that if not done carefully can become a bad thing. You know, we have to subscribe to the, is it the Hippocratic, Hippocratic oath of first do no harm. Yeah. And as leaders, it's really easy to do harm. So an optimist can, um, if, if done improperly, um, it can make people feel like, hey, this person's out of touch. Don't they realize the struggle is real? They have no idea what it's like to work so, on the night so shift. So like your leader that comes in and, and says, hey, guys, with a better attitude, we can get this done and it's going to be easy and we've got this. And, and the team's saying, no, we've got to acknowledge that this is a lot harder than just having a better attitude. Yeah. Yeah. And, and recognizing that it's natural to have struggle, but um, still having to the Stockdale paradox, you know, Admiral Stockdale, he said the optimist didn't survive, but he also said don't, he didn't say be depressed all the time. Yeah. He said, confront the brutal facts with unwavering faith of the ultimate outcome. I think that's probably an important thing for all of us that tend to be optimists to think of. It's okay. And it's actually better to recognize that there's a struggle or there's a challenge, even recognize it may take some time and it may take some effort because that invigorates those that are struggling to understand that they're not weird and they're not bad because they're struggling. They're actually normal, and their struggle is going to lead to the outcome that we have unwavering faith will happen. So, so the world knows that I think agency nursing is a four-letter word, and and that you know, if if I'm being an optimist, I'm maybe responding in a way where I'm saying, yeah, every, you guys can all be out of agency, right? It's easy. You can do it. Just just have a better attitude. Just just be a better employer. Now, if I'm changing myself to a realist, you're saying, hey. It can be done. I've seen it be done. I've seen the four-minute four mile be broken, right? Um, but I acknowledge how hard it is to get there, how hard it is to develop these, these practices that, that make you truly deserve the label of customer second. Just as you're saying that, I'm realizing, okay, my approach on this one might be a little bit of a diminishing characteristic of the optimist by saying, just have a better attitude and get rid of agency. And... Um... What you're saying is not wrong. Again, accidental diminishers, it's very close to the right thing. It's just a matter of a couple of degrees. I think your example is really good. At the end of the day, what you really want is people to figure out how to get rid of agency so our care can be better. So, you know, financial benefits will be recognized and more than anything, so our culture can be what we want our culture to be. And that just doesn't happen with agency. 
But if we accidentally diminish them by saying, hey, it's easy, just get it done. Everyone else is doing it. Why can't you? Yeah. If that demotivates them and they don't get the result, we didn't do our job as a leader. Yeah. Yeah. It just comes back to all of these buzzwords of being vulnerable and transparent and honest about our mistakes. And, you know, we've talked about creating a safe space for mistakes. I, I think back to being a rescuer and how... I love. I, I know I overshare this. I'm being repetitious. Sorry, Liz. Um, but the 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 idea of the the personal trainer, right? That that is rescuing the person that they're training. They're they're here. I'll lift this bar for you. Well, that person's not going to get anything out of it. And obviously, I'm not multiplying that person. Um, you know, Spencer, offer offer your final thoughts on on being an, a multiplier and and avoiding being an accidental diminisher. So. As you were speaking, there's just one more quick idea, and then I'll, I'll wrap up yeah. on my side. As, as you're speaking, um, I think it's so easy to be an accidental diminisher, especially when we think we either have to be the answer or provide the answers. I think our cluster model, we're so blessed to have the cluster model. And some of some of the things that are inherent in our culture, the, the flat organization, the idea of peer-to-peer transparency, I think a lot of times the answer is as simple as, you know, what we talked about in the other podcast, finding people's native genius and shining the spotlight on other people. Because, you know, if you're always the idea guy, that's can diminish people. But if you're the one that helps people share ideas and have that free flow of ideas and, you know, clarity of ideas, that's a multiplier. It's just, it's nuanced. Same thing on the optimist. You know, if you're the guy who's always, you know, minimizing, oh, it's not that hard. It can be done. You know, that can be annoying to people and it can be Worse, it can impede them from getting results. But saying, look, I know it can be done. I believe in you. And let me connect you with a few other cluster partners who have had the same struggle. And they're strong people just like you. They've accomplished it. Let's let's get their help and let's accomplish it together. Again, it's that we have that tool in our disposal that I think so many people don't have that allows us to overcome some of these, you know, accidental diminisher tendencies. So I guess just to wrap it up, I think... I just uh, encourage everyone to be aware. There's probably one or two things that we've talked about um, that may be an an area where you're an accidental diminisher. That's normal. I mean, I think most of us are accidental diminishers a lot more than than we think if we're honest with each other. But the the, the good part is it's fixable. Just like, you know, medicine can fix whatever malady you might have. If we have the discipline to apply some of these ideas and you know, even look and ask ask for help from others that maybe have, have overcome these challenges, we'll be able to be more multipliers incrementally and we'll get better results in the end. And ultimately it matters because what we're doing is dignifying, you know, post-acute care in the eyes of the world. And if we can change ourselves a little bit in order to get better results for our residents and for our staff, I think all of us know what we would do in that case. It's an easy bargain. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I wish I wish I had this book in here with me, but and and some statistics to be more specific. You know, there's a debate constantly about who is the best NBA player of all time, Michael Jordan or or LeBron James or Kobe Bryant or and and it's funny a name I never hear in there is a man by the name of Bill Russell. And Bill Russell won, I think it's like ten or eleven championships with the with the Boston Celtics. Just an an insane number. And Bill Russell is famous for saying it's it's the the best players. It's not about how many points they score, or it's about how they make players around them better. 
and the fact that his name i mean he's well known obviously and 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 he's certainly received accolades but i never hear him in that discussion yet the number of times he's been able to win that just trumps all the others from that mentality of well it can't be about me it it has to be about me helping others to be better and i feel like that's the way we are as you use the term going to be able to dignify post-acute care in the eyes of the world if we become people that are obsessed with making people around us better. So so thanks for coming in and, and sharing your thoughts on this. I, I'm hoping we're able to take one or two of these uh, uh, traits and, and, and work on them in ourselves and, and really you know progress towards becoming a multiplier. Thanks, Spencer. Yeah, thanks, Clay.